0: Well, as Micah said, we're in week four of our study, the book Vax, To the Ends of the Earth. And uh, those of you joining us online, it's great to have you with us and all of you here. Welcome. It's great to study God's Word together. I'm very excited about this series and I'm so thrilled that you're sharing it with us. When you think about great churches... I would guess that most of us think about a dynamic group of worshipers who are active in their community. They have great biblical preaching and they're caring for the needs of those in and outside their body. They have godly worship and strategic outreach where they're sharing the gospel on a regular basis and they're seeing regular conver- conversions. I think there are all of those are parts of a great church, a Christ-centered church. Well, as we've seen in the first three messages of this series, the first church had a significant impact in the city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to see over the course of this study is that this influence that they had is going to spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. As Luke, the author of the book of Acts, transitions to this next section of the story, he gives us a quick status report And we find it in Acts, the fourth chapter, verse 32. Listen to what he says. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. What Luke does here in this one verse is he reveals three qualities that the church exemplified that reveals that they had this, why they had this healthy success I mean, let's say they had great success in a relatively short time. What was the secret? Well, Luke gives us a little bit of an insight into it here in verse 32, and I want us to dig into this just for a moment. The first thing that we find that the church had was the church was unified. He says there at the very beginning of verse 32, he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And he started that phrase with all the believers, which means everybody, everybody in that body in Jerusalem, was on board. They were unified. Now churches are notorious for their petty reasons for why they'd have disagreements and sometimes they even split over those. Tom Rainer, who's the CEO and founder of an organization called Church Answers, he wrote a blog post several years ago titled 25 silly things church members fight over. Now he said this whole thing kind of got out of control real fast. He did this Twitter poll asking what do you what do churches fight about and he said the thing just blew up. He said people were so energized to share what they fought about at church and how absurd it truly was. So let me share just a few examples. I'm going to give you all 25, but it's a hilarious thing. You should Google it. Here's what he said. The first one was this: What's the appropriate length of the worship minister's beard? Now, we don't have that problem because our worship leader can't really grow much of a beard, okay? But he's young, and I think one day he's going to grow into it. The beard, he'll grow into a beard, okay? The second one was this. There there was one church that had a fight to decide to build a children's playground or use the land for a church cemetery. (laughs) Who are you going to minister to, right? And then this one probably is my favorite one. There was an argument of whether you should have deviled eggs at church meals, okay? Okay? (laughs) when <laughs> somebody said amen. You don't like them, do you? Okay? But here, here, I thought Rainer had a great response. He said, You can have deviled eggs if you have angel food cake for dessert, okay? <laughs> Just got to balance it out, right? And then the last one was this it was, there was a church that had a petition to have all the church staff clean shaven, which meant you're never going to have a church planner on your staff, okay? Because they, you don't know that? They all have beards. Church planners all have beards, okay? That thing hit like a lead balloon, okay. (laughs) One thing that the church in Jerusalem had, though, all those things aside, they had unity. They had unity. Now, what unites a healthy church is the mission, and that was certainly the case for the first church. Luke reminds the readers of the mission in the very next verse. Look what he says in verse 33. He says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The mission was to tell people about Jesus. And the thing that set him apart, that made him unique from any other religious leader ever, and even to this day, was his resurrection from the dead. So tell people about Jesus and let them know about his resurrection. You see, when everyone agrees that the purpose, what the purpose is, then they'll pull together to accomplish that purpose. The church, the first church, was unified. Now, the second quality that Luke points out that the church exemplified that revealed why they had this healthy success was the church was unselfish. Verse 32 continues. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Now, Luke makes the point here that the early church was unselfish when it came to their stuff. Some of you are going, where are you going, preacher? Okay. Okay. Here's what they were saying. Now, they were willing to share everything they had. And at first glance, this kind of sounds like a version of communism. But here's the difference, and it's a huge difference. Communism mandates that everyone surrender what they own for the benefit of the state. That's not what was happening in the first church. The church in Jerusalem wasn't mandating contributions from disciples. Instead, the believers were giving their things when a need was presented. The church was not only unified, it was unselfish. And then we find Luke telling us the third quality that the church exemplified that revealed why they had this healthy success, and that was the church exhibited generosity. He says this at the end of verse 32. He said, they shared everything they had. And then he goes on in 33, and he gives us kind of some more fodder or insight into why they were so generous. Look what he says in verse 33, the last part and and following. He says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now don't think that Every believer sold all of his or her belongings and gave the money to the church because that's not what was happening. In fact, verse 34 says, from time to time, that happened. From time to time, some of the members sold property and donated it. When the church had a need, the Holy Spirit would tap someone on the shoulder or stir their heart and direct them to sell something in order to meet that need. Luke tells us they were unified, unselfish And generous. And that was the secret to their healthy success. He continues in this context of sharing possessions, and Luke gives us two examples of giving one showing how generosity works, and the other showing how it easily can get hijacked. The first example is the example, the sacrificial generosity of a man by the name of Barnabas. We pick up his story in verses 36 and 37. He says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, and this is the last time you're ever gonna hear this guy called Joseph, but he's a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke introduces us to Joseph, who's nicknamed Barnabas. And that's how we know him throughout the rest of the Bible. And his his name actually means son of encouragement. Barnabas was a disciple who was known for being this tremendous encourager. I mean, if you were down, you wanted to be around Barnabas because he was going to lift you up. And Barnabas is one of these guys who throughout the Scripture you're going to find encouraging people. And here in this text we find his encouragement coming through his generosity. He voluntarily sold a field he owned, and he donated the money to the church. And the implication here is that he gave an enti- the entire amount of the sale as a contribution. He laid it at the apostles' feet as evidence of his support of their leadership of the ministry. What you'll find out as you read through the book of Acts... And the rest of the New Testament is Barnabas in himself had a remarkable ministry. He was a guy who is mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts alone and five other times in Paul's letters. And each time he's mentioned, he is usually encouraging someone. In fact, it was Barnabas who first encouraged Paul to go and serve as he started out in ministry. Think about the impact one man had. I mean, we know very little about Barnabas, but he was instrumental in Paul becoming Paul. Barnabas was an encouragement in so many ways, and one of those ways was through his generosity. Jesus said this about people like Barnabas, people who are generous. He says, give and you will receive. A large quantity pressed together, shaken down, and running over will be put into your pocket. The standards you use for others will be applied to you. Jesus makes the point that when you're generous, you're going to be blessed, whether it comes to you materially or spiritually or emotionally or relationally or in some other way. Not all the blessings of God have to do with money. You know, sometimes... They come as riches of the spirit like peace and joy and patience. Anybody need a little peace today? Or the gifts of of God come from things that money can't buy like a spouse or kids or a job that you love or forgiveness or respect. Generously giving generously changes you. It does. It frees you up and it undermines the power that money and possessions sometimes can hold sway over us. I wanted to give you, as we came to this point in Acts, I just want to give you a little bit of a snapshot of the current giving picture here in our church. Some of you track this every week. You see the graphics. You you follow along on the app. That's another plug for the app. You can follow along with that. But I wanted to give you a snapshot of the last six months. The last six months, our weekly offering averaged $25,147. That is 8% below what our weekly need was. Our weekly need last year was $27,300. That's a deficit of $2,153 every week. Now, I will tell you that if you look at the last six months of 2022, we met our weekly need or surpassed it five times out of 26 months. That is not a great financial picture. But that's from the giving standpoint. What I want you to know is that God has been unbelievably faithful to us. God has been so faithful to Northeast and so we continue to trust him and we continue to rely upon his provision here. The Old Testament has a name for God. It's Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord provides and God has been our Jehovah Jireh. So we continue to pray with faith that he will meet our needs and as his followers, we do have an opportunity to be part of that. And I wanted to let you know that. You know, the benchmark of giving is the tithe. Now, a tithe is just giving 10% of what you earn. The Old Testament certainly is a big proponent for the tithe. And those of us who are Christians, we live under the new covenant, and we know that we're not bound by the law of the Old Testament Rather, we use it as a guide. We still study it. We still learn from it. Most Christians agree, though, that the tithe is still a good guideline for giving. And it's also pleasing to God. Amen. We give our tithe to God through the church in order to accomplish the work of God. We want to see his kingdom advance. And we recognize that the church is responsible for praying and discerning what God wants us to use those resources Four, Paul told the church in Corinth this. In 2 Corinthians 9, he said, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Yes. So... I want to ask, if you're a Christ follower and you call this place home, I want to invite you to join me in giving as God calls you to give. Would you just pray over the next few weeks, considering what God would have you to give? Some of you are already giving, and you're incredibly faithful in that. And I want you to know how grateful we are for your generosity And investment. But some of you, this is new to you, and you're just stepping into this space, and you're trying to figure all that out. And I want to respectfully give you space to do that. But I also want to be courageous in asking you to be part of what God is doing here. You may not see how you could give a tithe, 10% of what you earn right now. But maybe you could start with 3% or 5% of your income, with the idea that you're going to move towards 10% over the course of the next months or years. I believe God will provide what you need when you faithfully give to Him. So consider taking a step toward greater financial confidence in God, not our paycheck or other resources, so that. As you put your confidence in him, you can experience more of him. Listen to this. I believe this is all my heart. God will do more with 90% when you tithe than you will ever do with 100%. Amen. Think about that just for a moment. And the other thing that I want you to know about is God, God has got you. You will never outgive him. You may think, oh, I'm going to blow this thing up. I'm going to go crazy. You will never outgive God. Ann and I found this to be true a number of years ago. There was a time when I was unemployed, and if you've ever been without a job, you know how tenuous that can be. That's a difficult season. Not knowing what the future held for us, we decided that we were going to do this one thing we're going to trust God to provide. Now, that's a little bit dicey. We had some reserves. We had saved for, you know, the emergency fund. I had got a little bit of income coming from a severance, and as a result... We said, we're going to trust you, Lord, and I will tell you that the results were amazing. Now, the things that didn't happen, we didn't have any major expenses during that season. No home repairs, no car repairs, no appliances that need replaced. Trust me, we have had those, and they have been significant. But they didn't happen during this season. And then there was this this season as well. We had no major health problems, no issues, none of us and nor either nor the girls. And then out of nowhere, there was this guy who called me in the middle of all of this and offered me a six-week job that paid $1,000 a week. And it was right in my wheelhouse. And so I said, sure. Every bill got paid on time during that season. And on top of all those blessings, there was a guy that I had met through ministry over the years, took me to lunch one day to share with me that he and his wife were going to send Ann and I $1,000 every month for as long as I was without a job. Now, when I started to explain to him, I said, Tom, I'm really grateful for this, but your, your generosity is overwhelming, but that's not necessary. And he interrupted me, and he said this. I was telling you this because I wanted you to know what was going to happen. I wasn't asking your permission uh, I was fighting over whether this guy wanted to give me $1,000. And I realized, God is at work here. Let me tell you this. Ann and I talked about this again this morning. We, we were overwhelmed by the blessings of God. It was showing itself in a time when we were in a valley. But God was this way all the time. Now, I share this story with you not because Ann and I have this faith that's so remarkable. Because there were some moments there where we weren't really sure Where fear was taking over and faith was waning but i wanted to tell you this story because god was so faithful to us during that season you will find god's faithfulness oftentimes more in the valley than you will during the times on the mountaintop but he is faithful in both instances please don't ever think that just because you are in a prosperous time in your life that somehow you don't need god because my friends you need him Every step of the way. We saw personally how God is so faithful and that you will never outgive him. Well, Barnabas was a very generous disciple, but in this instance, he does something that's remarkable. He gives sacrificially. Now, I say this because he sold this piece of property and he could have given any amount of that property from the sale of that property. But He gave the entire amount. Now, had he given 10% of that sale to the church, the church would have been thrilled. Trust me, I believe that with all my heart. But Barnabas gave the entire amount, which we would put in a category we would call sacrificial generosity. This is crazy generosity. And I mean crazy in a great way. Sacrificial generosity is when a person doesn't just believe that the things of this world don't define them. They actually live that way. They're not holding on tightly to those things to say, well, this is where my value comes from. No. More than simply acknowledging that their words, that material things aren't what this life is about, this disciple who's sacrificially generous actually sees his or her wealth and possessions as merely tools that God gives them to help advance his kingdom. Now, sacrificial giving doesn't mean that you toss everything you've got to the wind and end up with nothing left over. In fact, many sacrificial givers that I know are actually quite wealthy people. They seem to have this gift of giving that God has blessed them with great resources so that they can just continue to fire out to meet needs and provide for the ministry of God. They have so much, and yet they know they are merely God's stewards of their wealth, and they relish that. They take great joy in giving it away. They share it spontaneously, they share it strategically, and they share it sacrificially. They love and they trust God so much. They have no problem with letting go of what God has temporarily given to them to manage. So let me tie a bow on this part of the talk. What would it look like to give like Barnabas did in chapter four? What would it look like to be sacrificially generous? I want to be 100% clear here. I'm not trying to talk you into giving as much of your money to this church as possible. That is not God's economy. It's not how he's, he's laid this out for us. In fact, I would tell you don't do that. If you came to me and said, I'm selling it all, here it is, give it, just, just, you know, be happy with me. That's not what we're talking about. But what I do want to encourage you to do is invest in what God is doing here. Start with giving something, Anything. <clears throat> You know, with the idea that you're going to work toward giving a tithe to the church. I want to encourage you to invest in what God is doing here. Water where you're planted. Help this church to grow, help it to have more influence in its community. And then, as you gradually increase that percentage over time, look beyond Northeast for other places that you could help grow. Meaningful ministries beyond this building, this body. Opportunities in your neighborhood or in your kid's school or causes you feel passionately about that will advance God's kingdom. Leverage the resources that God has blessed you with to change eternity and learn how to save and earn more so that you can give even more. The Apostle Paul said this in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, remembering the words The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I know it's counterintuitive to believe that it's more blessed to give your stuff away than it is to receive stuff. But Jesus said it, so I believe it. And it's also, I believe, the most life-giving truth about money that we can learn. Think about it. Do whatever you have to do to be generous. God's gonna bless you. And you will be a blessing to the kingdom and to others in the process. So the first example that Luke gives us is showing us how generosity actually works. And he gives us this high-octane example that Barnabas gave. But the second example that Luke gives is one that shows how easily our generosity can get hijacked. And that is example number two, the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira. George MacDonald is a historical minister and author, great, great writer. He wrote this quote, Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Let me say that one more time. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. What are you trying to look like that truthfully you are not? Well, that was a problem here with Ananias and Sapphira. The term Jesus gave to that thing that MacDonald was talking about is the word hypocrisy. It means wearing a mask or playing the actor. You're just playing a part. It's not who you are. You're just playing a part. Warren Wearsby was a tremendous resource i say this every week for this series for certainly for me he writes this he says hypocrisy is deliberate deception trying to make people think we are spiritual more spiritual than we really are have you ever been guilty of that i didn't think you'd actually say it out loud (laughs) (laughs) i have i have yeah we probably all have haven't we we all have And that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. Let me read their story, a part of their story, starting in Acts 5. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. This is right on the heels of Barnabas, okay? With his wife's full knowledge, that's a smart man right there, full knowledge, okay? He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And then Luke tells us that about three hours later, his wife, oh, excuse me, I didn't finish the verse, did I? Sorry, I left the best part out, or maybe not. Ananias, <laughs> Ananias heard this. He fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. He lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he keels over after Peter confronts the sin. Luke tells us that about three hours later, Sapphira shows up, and she tells Peter the same lie, and she too falls over dead. And then in Acts 5:11, he says great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I bet that there was great fear in the whole church. During the offering, people were dying because they lied about what they gave. Okay? Did you give that? Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> What a stewardship campaign that would have been, right? Here's the deal. This entire event was set like an old, wild, uh, an old uh, Western movie set. You know what I'm talking about? You walk down Main Street and you've got all these buildings, but you go through one door and you realize that all you have is a front. There is no building there. It's just the facade of a building. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were putting on this amazing front in order to conceal the life that didn't exist. They weren't as spiritual as Barnabas. They weren't as generous as Barnabas. And they tried to cover their sin. Now, here's what I want us to do in the few minutes we have left. Very quickly, I want us to look at how Satan hijacked this offering from Ananias and Sapphira. The first thing he did was this. Satan worked to get them to sin. If Satan can't Defeat the church by attacks from the outside. He will work his way on the inside. He's going to do his work in the lives of believers if we give him latitude, if we give him footholds. He knows how to lie to the minds and hearts of church people, even genuine Christians. And he can get them to follow his evil plans. We know this because we see this periodically, how, how, God, how uh, God has position people in places of ministry. And yet we find out how Satan deceived them and they commit some terrible sin. They have they an have extramarital affair, breaks their marriage apart, splits a church. Or maybe they, they, they have, they're guilty of abusive behavior. And we read about these things and we find out the mission of the church gets damaged because Satan got a foothold in somebody's life. We forget that the admonition to put on the full armor of God, the spiritual armor of God in Ephesians 6, was written to Christians, not unbelievers, because Satan works overtime to try to convince Christians to accomplish his evil purposes. There's a question. Is it possible that Satan is trying to use me? We should ask that periodically. Is my behavior in such a manner that Satan would use that to compromise or, or derail God's kingdom work. Oliver Wendell Holmes, famous Supreme Court justice, wrote, Sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. What a great lie. Satan, li- Satan is a liar, and he lied to this couple, and that lie led to sin and eventually to their death. And when God judged Ananias and Sapphira, he was also judging Satan, and he was serving notice, letting everyone in the church know that he would not tolerate deception in his church. The second thing that Satan did to hijack this offering was he used pride. Pride motivated this sin. We read this in Proverbs 8.13. Check this out. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. You can almost hear God saying that. But you got to know God hates pride. And no doubt the church was praising God for this generous gift from Barnabas. But at that time, Satan was whispering into the ears of this couple, you know, you too could enjoy that kind of glory right there. Wouldn't you like to have that? You can make everyone think that you're as spiritual as Barnabas. Yeah. And instead of resisting Satan's temptations, they yielded to him. Jesus made it clear that we must be careful how we give lest the glory that belongs to God should be given to us. Whatever we possess, God has given to us. This is an important point in this idea of God's blessing, the resources that he gives us. We are stewards, not owners. That word steward means to manage. We've been given the, the responsibility of management, not ownership. We must use what he gives us for his glory. Amen. All right, the third, the third thing that we see Satan did to hijack this was he used their sin and he directed it against God's church. It seems pretty clear that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. In fact, the spiritual level of the church at that time was so high that it's doubtful that anyone could be falsely claiming to have faith and could have gotten into that fellowship without being detected. You know, like they were posers and they didn't really believe. The fact that they were able to lie to the Holy Spirit would indicate that they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And had Peter not been discerning to call them out Ananias and Sapphira would surely have become influential people in that that church. Let me caution you. It is easy for us to condemn Ananias and Sapphira for their deception, but we would be wise to examine our own lives. Jesus said in Matthew 15 These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We should ask ourselves, is my profession of faith backed up by the practice of my faith? My mom used to say, words are one thing, actions are another. Actions just prove that what we say is what we really believe. We must keep in mind that their sin, Ananias and Sapphira's sin, was not robbing God of money. But by lying, they rob God of his glory. Ananias and Sapphira weren't required to sell that property. And having sold it, they weren't required to give any of the money to the church. Their desire for recognition produced the sin in their hearts, which eventually led to their death. There's a lot to think about today. Let me tie it all up here with this last thought. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, his protege, about, and in that first letter he talks about being generous. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Amen. You know, it's pretty clear, I think, in this passage, probably doesn't need a lot of explanation, but woven through the fabric of this, these two verses, Paul's repeating this idea of being generous over and over again. In essence, do you have money? Great, release it. Don't hoard it. Use it for kingdom purposes. Let generosity become your trademark. Be generous with your time, with your energy, with your encouragement, and yes, even with your finances. And then, when you're generous, do you know what happens? Paul says, along with being blessed by God, knowing that you're investing in eternity, you will take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, a lot of people are chasing after the good life today. But what Paul told Timothy was that when you are generous with what God has given to you, you're a good steward as opposed to thinking of yourself as an owner. He says, then you have the opportunity to take hold of the life that is truly life, the way that God designed this life to be lived and enjoyed and experienced. I want you to experience that. I want you to enjoy and take, by taking hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your generosity toward us. You held back nothing. You sent Jesus to die on the cross, and for that we are forever grateful. You have been so faithful God, as Jehovah Jireh, to provide for us not just those spiritual needs, but you have met so many other needs as well. Please help us, God, to be people who are generous in such a manner that our generosity will fuel the advance of your kingdom, and we will see people in heaven someday because of those investments, we pray in Jesus' name.